0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Budhang Thamang Sanghang Namasami. Welcome to another Sunday afternoon at uh, Amravati. So, uh, the Amravati. The 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 theme for the afternoon's talk. The title is um, "How Can I Stop This Story Making Factory?" It is an interesting title. Uh, I didn't make it up myself, but at uh, the. Uh, <coughs> Different members of the sangha contribute these uh, themes, different uh, ideas for these talks, and uh, this was one that caught my eye. I think all of us uh, have the experience, to some extent or another, of the uh, the mind going on and on, just endlessly uh, chattering away. And uh, at first, I wasn't particularly conscious of this. Um, uh, I didn't start to uh, try and do any kind of meditation really until I was uh, twenty one years old and had uh, started living in a monastery in thailand um i, I kind of entered Buddhism in a odd way I, I was already in a monastery before I started to learn how to meditate so so I'd never really been a lay buddhist yeah. so i was uh <coughs> I encountered uh, uh i went to the monastery in order to um have a, a free place to stay. <laughs> and then, uh, which I thought was a good deal, you know. But, uh, but, uh, it was a, a good opportunity have a, a free roof over the head for the night for two or three days and um, then things took off from there. <laughs> but um, having arrived in the monastery and uh, having been given a place to stay for a few days and the uh, I asked the monks you know, what 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 it was that they did, and then they started to explain about meditation. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I I definitely have a need to to do uh, to try that. That sounds very useful, very helpful. And so it wasn't until I started to try to meditate that I realized just how uh, unstoppable uh, the chattering mind was. Uh, it was completely um, uh, say. Uh, uh, unapparent to me you know, just in the midst of a of a uh, an average uh, sort of busy student's life in, in that era uh, my mind was just going on all the time but I never really stopped to look at it so the fact that it was endlessly thinking and um, commentating and opinionating about uh, life the universe and everything it wasn't ter- terribly obvious to me because I never tried to stop it as soon as I started to pay attention, and that the the, the monks said, Well, you know the way you meditate is you you bring your mind to concentrate on your breath and you hold your attention there on the breathing uh, so when I, I I tried to do that and taking the breath as a, as a still point as a, a reference point uh, in the in the mind, it was suddenly apparent how this thing never stops. <laughs> It just goes on and on and on, and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't stay on its uh, appointed object. Wouldn't uh, stay on the breath for more than a few seconds before <laughs> flying away in some different direction. And uh, you know, the first, thing, well, hang on a minute. No, no, I just, uh, I need to pay. I mean, I need to pay closer attention. I should make a bit more effort because surely I can, uh, I can be a bit, um, I can do a bit better than this. But uh, no, uh, no matter how hard I tried. I mean, with, the, with the greatest uh, intention and, and will in the world, you know, I couldn't seem to keep my, my mind on the breath more than a few seconds, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds at the most, and then you know, away it would go again. So that was the, the point when I realized, oh, this thing never stops, <laughs> this mind. It just goes on and on and on. And so uh, then I realized, well, it's probably been doing this my entire life, <laughs> But I've just never really noticed, never turned my attention in uh, inwards long enough to really see what the mind is doing. But as, uh, because of being so busy and active with um, uh, everything else that was going on in my life, uh, just uh, living and uh, going to university and, and uh, spending time with friends and traveling about, filling the mind with all sorts of interesting things and, and activities, never really noticed what the mind was doing. But when you bring things to a stop, or you you try to, and you pay attention, you realize uh, this is really a story-making factory. This really is a a generator of thoughts, uh, just like a volcano or a fountain, just throwing out one thought after another after another, and uh, just deciding, oh, I think I'll stop thinking. (laughs) I think it would be a good idea for my mind to be quiet. Just having that thought, just having that, that idea, uh, didn't seem to have very much effect at all so it was um uh, the uh a kind of um, salutary lesson first of all to to recognize how uh, uncontrollable the mind uh, really uh, really is And once we notice how the the mind And by, by the way is that a familiar experience <laughs> not that I'm psychic I just you know but it's uh generally the case that uh, when we when any one of us stops to to turn the attention inward and to watch what the thought processes are are doing then uh then we realize you know this uh this mind uh, just creates an endless uh, string of thoughts and associations and memories and projections and opinions and just goes on and on and on. And it never even really seems to finish a sentence. You know, it gets halfway through and then off on a different tangent and then another and then another and then another and then another. And then another. So when we, we see that the mind is so active and so busy and then we begin to notice how oppressive that can be that actually that endless thinking that the, the story making factory can be um uh productive of a lot of anxiety a lot of stress just the the, the um, capacity of the mind to create worries and and uh, internal difficulties and stresses so that we can't sleep properly at night we're we're always getting upset in different uh, situations um say, uh, feeling nervous or feeling uh, uh, irritated or feeling, uh, say, um, uh, excited or, or carried away by different situations, just because of what the mind is adding on to, um, uh, a, say, an encounter with some other people or a job that we have to do or a uh, a situation that we have to deal with. So it can be that the the, the thinking capacity of the mind becomes like a, a kind of inner tyrant, endlessly... Um, making our life more difficult and complicated and confusing you know, even simple things like you know going into a a cafe and ordering some food or <laughs> or uh, meeting uh, members of your family or or coming to listen to a dhamma talk in the monastery <laughs> you know, simple everyday things uh, can be fraught with all kinds of of projections and uh, anxieties and and worries about what the uh, uh what the other people think about us or um whether we're going to get something right or um whether someone's going to take my favorite spot you know it's even in a meditation hall you know you can uh, you can experience uh feels of um ownership ter- territoriality when someone you come into the the meditation hall and someone has taken your seat yeah and it's not even your place. You know, it's just, it, it, but somehow you've claimed ownership and the mind has created a story about how you have to sit there and that's the right place, the best place for you to be. So when we we begin to witness how much of a tyrant uh, and a tormentor the the thinking mind can be, then um, we can uh, say, wish uh, to switch it off in any way uh, possible. And so sometimes we can uh, take meditation and the capacity to concentrate and use it as a kind of club to beat our thinking mind into submission. Like, you know, shut up, <laughs> smash, and, and just using our will and effort to just force the mind to be quiet. And sometimes, if, particularly if we have good powers of concentration or, or a lot of will, we can, we can make that happen. But that kind of inner quietude is rather like, um, and taking a taking a, a busy uh, a busy two-year-old and um, sort of wrapping duct tape around their mouth and <laughs> expecting that to, to bring real peace and quiet. I remember when I was uh, thinking of busy uh, busy three-year-olds. Uh, every year, my family used to go on a, a summer holiday to visit my grandmother's relatives in uh, in Ostend in Belgium. Their family had a hotel on the on the seafront. And the whole family would, would go over from England on the ferry, uh, the, the mail boat from uh, Dover or Folkestone. Uh, it's a three-and-a-half-hour uh, uh, ferry ride across the channel to Ostend in Belgium. And uh, we'd uh, make all this journey together, and my, my grandparents would, would rent a little cabin on the, on the boat. And I was very chatty as a young child. It's hard, hard to believe, I know. But uh, apparently, I was completely quiet for the first eighteen months, and my mother even thought there was something very wrong with me because I just lay there in my pram and just looked. I didn't utter a peep, but at eighteen months, I started talking, and I didn't stop <laughs> for for any reason, so we were on this um this uh uh boat ride across the channel, and my grandfather, who was this very very quiet and uh and so sort of shy and um and sort of um gentle uh, old jewish businessman uh, he said uh, i will give you sixpence i will give you sixpence if you stop talking for five minutes <laughs> and at that at that age uh, at, uh, at that i was like you know four or five three or four years old you know, four or five years old sixpence was serious money and i nearly exploded with the effort of trying to keep quiet for five minutes. And I don't think I could manage it. I think I, I didn't earn my sixpence. So, um, and just trying to stop the mind from, from, uh, pouring forth its, its verbiage, all, all the words just by force, just by suppression. It's like the, the sort of five year old Ajahn Amaro trying to be quiet for, for five minutes. <laughs> the, you just, um, uh, applying pressure and um, and force, but it doesn't bring, bring a very peaceful or, or beneficial result. And uh, trying to just dis- suppress the thinking mind into submission, it just makes us explode, and uh, it brings a a, a, a very um, uh, say very painful and, and uh, uh, even more uh, stressful and, and complicating result than than uh, even just letting the mind carry on thinking. So suppression of the thinking mind, just trying to stop it and make it go quiet um, by force, or just, or just uh, say using you know, drugs or alcohol to make it uh, to make it go quiet, uh, that uh, that doesn't really bring any kind of solution. But uh, rather, in in the way of of the uh, the um, paths of Buddhist practice, rather we take the approach of, of understanding what well, what is it that's driving the the whole process. What's what's the what's the fuel that the factory is running on in the first place you know, why does the mind do this and and how can we learn to uh, say uh, stop that that whole process from um, from running so that, that we're not energizing that agitated um, proliferation of thoughts in the first place well there's a um a very uh, very helpful Sutta, uh, discourse of the Buddha, where he talks about this this very process, where it's described, and uh, the story starts off with the, the Buddha sitting under a tree in the forest, and uh, he's meditating by himself in the woods, and this uh, Brahmin uh, called Dandapani, uh, which means um, stick in hand, is a, and it seems like he was some kind of a professional debater, and uh, he was you know someone who would uh, engage people in argument as a kind of sport or as a a way of life you know, and in uh, even today in, in india um if you want some entertainment at a family event you know like rather than sort of hiring a, hiring a band for your wedding you you hire a couple of philosoph- philosophers and get them to deba- debate in front of you and ha- have a good philosophical spiritual argument so dandapani was one of these kind of debating brahmins and he saw the buddha sitting under a tree and he thought okay i'll I'll try my hand with this one so he uh, he goes up to the Buddha in this very kind of arrogant, strident way and says, "So, uh, <clears throat> you're a wanderer. You're a yogi. What kind of what kind of philosophy do you teach? What kind of practice do, do you follow? Yeah, you know, what's your what's your spiritual path? You know, basically trying to provoke him or, or get an argument going so he could prove how how wise and clever uh, he was." And uh, the Buddha responded by saying. Um, uh, I, I engage in the practice and I espouse the principle of non-contention, <laughs> not to argue with anyone in the world. So then, uh, Dandapani, having uh, heard that, is uh, as it says in the uh, in the uh, in the Sutra. It says he he uh, clicked his tongue, puckered his brow into three furrows, and and then strode off, having nothing further to say. So. Is completely uh, frustrated by that so then uh, when the Buddha went back to the monastery and he recounted this this story and uh, he uh, he talked about this and said you know that it's <clears throat> it's only when you've um, say removed the causes of, uh, for mental proliferation conceptual proliferation you know this is uh, how we end uh, the quality of conflict this is how we uh, Say, develop the mind, the heart of, of non-contention, is through truly understanding how the mind um, creates proliferations and gets attached to the perceptions that it has created. You know, how we the mind creates stories and then gets lost in the stories that it creates. It's only when we understand this that we can stop uh, the the causes of contention, contending with others in the world and also contending with ourselves. So he made a, a very brief statement on this, and then and disappeared off and went into his kuti, his his hut, by himself. Probably having had his meditation interrupted in the forest by Dandapani, (laughs) it seems like he was also ready for a bit of solitude. So then the other members of the Sangha asked uh, Mahakachana, say, can you explain what the Buddha meant? Because Mahakachana was the one who was most well-known for being able to explain in detail statements uh, made by the the Buddha in, in brief. And so then Mahakachana said, well, you know, you should really be asking the Buddha these questions yourself you know, when you next have the chance, but I'll do my best to explain what I think he meant. And then what uh, Mahakachana explained, he said, well, the way that this thing works is when the, uh, say for example, when the eye um, sees a a mental object, when there is uh, a light and the eye and then eye consciousness arises, we call this contact. The coming together of, of these three of the of light uh, of the eye and of eye consciousness when those three come together we call that we call that sense contact. When there is sense contact, that gives rise to a feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neutral feeling. Yeah. When there is a feeling, then that gives rise to a perception. The the perception of saying yeah uh, uh, a red color or a green color or a blue color. Uh, in terms of light or a, a particular shape um, and so that per, that perception sanya in uh, in pali that uh, <coughs> that word the word sanya is related to the english word sign so uh, it's like the, the shape or the form uh, of what's experienced and then sanya uh, gives rise very quickly to thought to vitaka so then you you see something uh, the the eye receives the light uh, there's a perception, and then the thought says "tree," <laughs> or it says "yeah, you know, Brahmin approaching." <laughs> there's a uh, the, there's the thought that names the 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 thing that's being perceived, and then after the thought, after vitaka, then the thought gives rise to what is called papancha. So this is the the main uh, subject for for this afternoon is this. Um, uh, this uh, what this word papancha refers to. The English uh, best English translation for this is conceptual proliferation, the mind's capacity to create associative thought, one thought running on um, after another, after another, after, after another, uh, papancha. And that conceptual proliferation then leads to what is called papancha sannyasankar, which is the, the multiplicity of thoughts and perceptions and feelings that beset the heart and, uh, and give rise to the experience of a conflict basically um, a me in here, a world out there and the and a sense of stress between the two. So this is this is how it works we so have contact, feeling, perception, thought, conceptual proliferation and then papancha sanya Sankar the the whole multiplicity of, of thoughts and perceptions that uh, arise uh, from that pro, uh, proliferation. So, this is how the factory works. <laughs> it all starts off with with a with a perception hearing a sound uh seeing an object, uh smelling something, tasting something uh or also a thought you know randomly arising memory or an idea. This is also counts as a, a as a sense object you know within the Buddhist psychology, the mind sense is uh is another of the sense organs, so the eye perceives light, the ears perceive sound. The mind perceives thoughts and emotions. So then, then the Mahakachana mapped out the process uh, like this and said, so, you know, this is, this is how it is that as, uh, uh, as the mind is influenced by perceptions, if the mind is untrained and um, habitually following greed, hatred, and delusion, then it, uh, uh, in a very rapid succession, uh, you know, every, everything that we see or hear or, or think. Then that gives rise to an association, and off the mind runs. When I was uh, uh, starting my time at, at uh, Wat Phananchat, that monastery that I showed up to for a, a free, <laughs> a free place to stay in, in Thailand, uh, and I was uh, I was very inspired and, and very attracted by the the teaching and the way of life in the forest and uh, living in the uh, in the um, very simple, down to earth way of a forest monk. Um, and I, as I said, you know, it was very clear to me how out of control my mind was. Um, but even though that I didn't experience very much much peace or inner quietness in the meditation, I, I had a lot of faith that this was the the right direction to head in. And it, what was really one of the things that was really striking to me was that, in fact, the first two or three years of my monastic life, almost everything that happened was like a cue for a song. Now, some of you will remember the, those sort of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies, you know the. The road to Morocco, the road to Rio, and, one, and every so often one of them would turn to the other and say, "That sounds like a cue for a song," and then they would burst into the next number. Right? This familiar to some? I see people nodding. It. That sounds like a cue for a song. Well, my entire life, every day, seemed to be you know, like that's like a cue. That's, that sounds like a cue for a song. You know, I'd hear a word that somebody would say, or that some food would be offered, and at the meal time, and and then there would be just uh, <clears> the <throat> the color of a, of a of a piece of fruit or a, a word somebody uses use or the, the smell of uh, of uh, some kind of um the you know the rain on the on the earth in the forest and then <laughs> off uh, off the, the mind would go and it would and because i spent most of my teens filling my head with, with uh, pop music there was a lot of songs in there and i was a, i was staggered by the amount of music I could remember, and, and not even just pop songs that I, I, I listened to on the radio, but even from when I was a small child, my, my sisters had these uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's um, musicals. The 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 you remember LP records, <laughs> <laughs> South Pacific, Oklahoma, and uh, I could my my memory could come up with whole tunes, whole songs from Oklahoma and uh, South Pacific and uh, these musicals just. You know, one, one little word, and then, oh, no, there it goes again. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, no. And uh, just the, the, you could see the mind's hunger for having some object, you know, something to, to get hold of, something to chew on, and everything would be a cue for a song, or at least a, a string of thought. So, uh, in uh, in in seeing how this process works, you might think, well, okay, you know, understanding or having a, a map for how it works, it still doesn't get the thing to switch off. <laughs> so, uh, where well, we are fed up with listening to Rodgers and Hammerstein's uh, musicals or the, our own individual versions of it, um, then uh, <laughs> it's important to 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 recognise that um, the more mindfulness that we bring to to what's going on mentally, then the more that we can have an effect. Because there's, as uh, Mahakachana mapped out in that, that discourse, and, uh, and by the way, um, after uh, he um, uh, uh, say had given this discourse, then uh, Ananda was listening to it, and then he he uh, later on went to the Buddha, and he explained what Mahakachana had said, and the Buddha said, this is very good. What, what Mahakachana said is exactly what I would have said and there is no, no difference whatsoever he has said the words that I would have said uh, precisely and um, so Ananda in his, usually, uh, his usual effusive way said well yeah it's such a wonderful talk it was so marvellous, it was so amazing, it was so incredible, it was so sweet, it was, it was so delicious it was, it was like a, a, a ball of honey, like a perfectly, uh, a perfectly formed sweet morsel um, what should we call this discourse? And the Buddha of said, well, you we can call it the Honeyball ball sutta, or the, the sweet morsel. So it's, that's why it's called Madhu Pindaka, means the Honeyball sutta, because it's a, such a sweet morsel of the teaching. So the Buddha confirmed that Mahakachana got it right, so that the more mindfulness that we were able to bring, then we're, the more we're able to see that process happening. And as the mind starts to, to go off on this this uh, this kind of associative chain, so that we... We uh, hear the sound of a of a bird, and uh, we say, oh, and maybe we hear a, a pigeon uh, sitting on the on the roof, uh, crowing in the morning, and think that sounds like a pigeon. When I was a child, I used to think those were penguins. Why did I think they were penguins? I lived in Kent. <laughs> But I was convinced there was, peng- there was penguins, because it sounded like what a penguin would sound like. like well, penguins... Yeah, I've always wondered, why do they call those chocolate bars, penguins? That's very strange. Now, I wonder who... They actually employ people to think up names of chocolate bars. Actually, I also wondered about, you know, color cards. When, you, when you're buying paint, all the paints in the color card, they're always strange, esoteric names. Now Someone must have a job. I wonder if you can go to college and learn how to make up... Then you realize, hang on a minute, I'm now discussing the nature of, of choosing names for paints. And it started off with the sound of a bird. So then uh, the more mindfulness you bring to it, the more you, you're able to recognize, Yeah, well, hang on a minute, um, I'm sitting here in the sala at Amravati, or I'm sitting here in my, my home, and I just heard, I heard the sound of a bird. There was a sound, and then um, the, the whole thing took off from there. So one of the the ways that we can um, say use mindfulness and uh, and say helpfully and understand this process is that as soon as you realize that you're you're completely lost in your thoughts, um, it's easier to do this in, in meditation, but also just in the ordinary flow of your days, you can do this. when you you realize your mind has got carried off on some some uh, extensive sidetrack and you and you think you realize, now wait a minute, why am I sitting here trying to work out what kind of a college course you would do to learn how to name paints? Now where did that come from? So I was thinking about the paints came from the thought about the chocolate bars and the chocolate bars came from the thought about the penguins and the penguin came from that strange uh, perception I had when I was a child. And that came from the sound of the pigeon. Uh-huh. So it all started off with just hearing that sound. There was the There was the the, the sense contact, there was the pasa, the contact. Then there was the, the feeling, it's a pleasant, pleasant sound. Then there was the perception of, oh, that's the sound of a bird. So, contact, feeling, perception. And then, uh, I, I said, I thought, pigeon, it's a pigeon. And then, from the thought, from the vitaka, then the papancha, the, the, uh, the papancha mill started turning. <laughs> and then uh, off it went. So that you trace, if you, if you take the trouble to trace it back, to follow the, the whole string of thoughts back to where it came from, you recognize that even when you start off, uh, and, and it can often be a lot more emotionally loaded than thinking about paint color. Or maybe that can be a very emotive subject. So, I know Choosing paint colors can be something that has a lot of charge to it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it can be something more Stressful, like uh, how somebody has really done you wrong, and how that awful person really should be set straight, and that you know, he shouldn't be be like this, and she shouldn't have done that. You know, she's always she's always doing that. She she knows it annoys me, and uh, creating a, a lot of emotional charge and, and stress within us. But uh, you know, we can we can trace it back from that say that stressful state where it's sort of me in a state of, of tension or a conflict with, with the world. As we trace it back, then it gets more and more simple. Whereas we start off at a place of, of uh, complexity and stress, then the further you trace back the whole process, the simpler it gets until you realize, oh, it was just a sound. It was just a sound, and th- and then this whole thing launched from that. So this, uh, this practice um, of following... Things back to the source. It takes uh, a, an effort as a, a quality of mindfulness is needed for that, but it can be extraordinarily helpful. And um, uh, in the uh, later years, after this was a kind of practice Lumpur Samedha would often talk about and encourage people to do, and I found out uh, later on that this there was a, a great master of the Korean tradition of about three or four hundred years ago, the Chinul who also developed the same kind of practice in uh, in Zen meditation in in Korea. And uh, he used the term tracing back the radiance as as a a book of his teachings that's got that title. And uh, he describes in in some detail this kind of methodology of how to to patiently and steadily always follow the thought back to where it came from. And then when we do this, as soon as you notice your mind has got lost in some kind of proliferative excursion, uh, as soon as you know the mind's got lost, first of all, to, to make a careful note, okay, what does this feel like? Here I am, I'm creating this this, this uh, story in my mind about this particular monk who really is um, uh, an irritating person or this particular nun who I've really upset and I've got to straighten things out with or, or this particular um member of my family who's in a, in, a, in, a, in a difficult state and it's up to me to try and make, <laughs> make them all right. That you, as soon as you are aware that the mind has got lost in some proliferation, take a note of what that feels like, that sense of responsibility, the sense of anxiety, the sense of desire or fear or um, uh, indignation, to let yourself feel that and recommend, okay, what's this like? What's this emotion in the body? Where do I feel this indignation or this anxiety or this pressure of responsibility or this, um, this uh, compassionate concern? You know, what's it like? Where do I feel it? You know, where is it in the body? What's its texture? And to, to let yourself be fully aware of that stressful, pained quality. And then as you uh, mindfully trace back the, the thought, the, the energy of the, the thought having um, been followed back to its source, then when you get back to the recognition, oh, it was just a random memory. It was just the the, the smell of the, that particular dish at the at the mealtime. It was just the sound of that bird, or it was just the the um, the, the phrase that somebody used. It's just I heard that sound, I smelt that uh, that aroma, uh, you know, I saw that that object, and then uh, that's where it came from. When you bring the attention back to the initial sense contact, again, notice how that feels. What does what's the 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 tone the texture of that experience? just hearing the sound or smelling the the aroma, uh, seeing the object, and inevitably, whereas the where it starts out from, where where you have uh, where you've, when you when where you've ended up, there's a a stressful, tense, uh, burdened and um, insecure uh, or, or tight quality to it, agitated quality. When you bring it back, when you follow it back to its source, to its origin. To the sense perception it's always extremely simple <laughs> uncomplicated and straightforward even a, a loud sound or a, a bitter taste or a a a, a, a harsh color it's just well, it's just a color it's just a sound it's just a thought and that and if you let yourself really experience and fully know that quality of uh, of simplicity uh, then recognize okay <laughs> this is easy to be with this is not burdensome this is not difficult this is there's no insecurity or trouble associated with this. So this is one methodology of learning how to to um, work with the, the uh, conceptual proliferation and the, the, the stories the mind tells. Another kind of practice that's, that's similar to this or related that uh, uh, many of you who will have listened to uh, Ajahn Sumedho's Dhamma talks over the years will be familiar with is making the thought conscious and uh, so this is, again, it takes a, a degree of mindfulness and uh, an application. But when you are, say so you're feeling some kind of regret, something that you've done, you feel uh, very bad about, oh, I'm such a terrible person, I, you know, I fell into that bad habit again, I said I wasn't going to do that and I did it again, I'm such an awful person, Yeah, you know, there's no hope for me, they should just sort of take me out of the back of the barn and just finish me off, you know you know, I'm a burden to society, I'm a, a, you know, just taking up space here, life would be much better off without me. Or if you're upset with somebody else, like, uh, how could she do that, that's so terrible, that, you know, she knows that I don't like that, you know, she was at that meeting when we all agreed that we weren't going to do that, and now she's gone and done it, and she, I know she does it on purpose." She's deliberately doing that just to make me upset, and and that uh, I'm not going to let her go. Not going to let her go away with it. She's not going to get away with it. And yeah, so we we hear these kind of. Um, we all have our own particular scripts that we. I'm I'm not I'm not reading anybody's mind. In case you're worried, like, oh my god, how did he know? You know, this this there is no there's no uh, mind reading involved. It's just. Human nature is pretty much the same everywhere. So, so into to to, to uh, hear what the mind is saying, it's like, and to and what uh, Lumpur Sumedha would would encourage is that when you you hear your, your your mind ranting on about what you're worried about, what you're excited about, what you've got to have, you know, I got to have it, I got to have it, I got to have it. Uh, I can't stand it. You know, she's doing it again. Uh, or I'm such an awful person. Whatever it might be, some kind of um, uh, pattern of thinking. As soon as you, you notice, oh, the mind has got lost in one of its stories. You know, it's it's got uh, carried away with this particular judgment. Oh, this person is awful, or or, uh, you know, or this uh, this is a, a wonderful thing, and I've got to have it. Or uh, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm an awful person, or a wonderful person. If you then catch the thought. It's almost like as if our, our thoughts were playing on a, on a uh, recording. Like on a, I would say tape. That's, that dates me even more as, as much as Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh. But uh, replay the rewind, you know, go to a different place on the MP3 file, you know. <laughs> go back a bit uh, on the file and you catch the thought and replay it so that uh, you, you are able to, to, to listen to what your mind is saying you know, very deliberately. And this is a very powerful practice because, uh, and, uh, and I've used this a lot over the years, so if you take that thought and, you, and, uh, and then you replay it, but replay it in full consciousness, like saying, uh, <coughs> I'm just taking up space. The world would be, would be much better off without me. Or say, she's doing it again. I know she only does that to annoy me. And when you do that, and you replay a thought of that nature, you can't usually get to the end of the sentence before the whole thing collapses. Because those kind of, of thoughts of, of praising, of judging, of liking, of disliking, of, uh, of self-creation, you know, creating uh, perceptions about yourself or perceptions about others, they depend upon not really being seen clearly. They're sort of off in the wings and at the edges, and when you get them into into the the full light, you know, front center stage with with all the lights on, then they can't really stand up. You you can see all the you can see all the strings. <laughs> you can see you can see how it's all held together. So when you when you do this, uh, and it's quite a, a simple practice, but it's incredibly effective. Just to to state that, like, if you were different, I would be happy. Right, you can't. You can't even finish the sentence. It's not even a long sentence, but it just because before you even finish it, you know, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah, and you wouldn't find anything else to be upset about. Oh, congratulations, you know, that you would be completely happy if someone's behaviour was was a bit different. Oh, and you realise no, it's and that's not it, and uh, you you begin to see how. Um, much the mind has just bought into its own projections, its own anxieties, insecurities, loves and hates and habitual judgments. And uh, how it's uh, it's, uh, so much of it is just driven by our own inner habits of like and dislike, our own insecurities um, that might maybe move towards greed and desire. If you're a lobachirita, a a desire type, greed type, or if they move towards a, Doubt and, and worry and and fear, if you're or, or confusion, if you're a moha chirit type, a, a confusion type, or um, or towards irritation and complaining and contending, if you're a dosa chirit. You don't have to memorize these three basic character types: loba greed type; moha chirit, delusion type; a dosa chirit, aversion type. It's a kind of simple map of the of human psychology <laughs> but uh, where we get lost in these particular uh, uh, habit patterns so if you you're, if you have those tendencies uh, like your mind moves towards greed or moves towards aversion then and that's a, a strong habit then it just um, will pick up any kind of an object so that the, the the process of proliferation then feeds on that tendency So say if you're an aversion type, that you you you've created a lot of habits of negativity you're creating the sense of self around complaining, criticizing, judging uh, others that's where your sense of being comes from like you know, just the mind creates a continual list of what's wrong with with others or what's wrong with the world you know, having a good grumble <laughs> that uh, that's what makes us feel alive or contending with something, having a good argument you know. Having a, a, a or complaining and criticizing, you know, opening the newspaper, yeah, you know, <laughs> and having a good grumble, you know, and this, or that uh, it gives us a sense of being, <clears throat> and uh, or if we're a greed type, you know, that what we want to get, what we want to have, and uh, the, the things that we we want to chase after. So then that those habits uh, are say then they're they're like the fuel that the story making factory runs on. And so that uh, when we begin to see that process, and we're able to say catch that thought, like, yeah, I can't believe she did that again. If only she wouldn't do that, I would be happy. And you realize when you hear that, and you just freeze that, and you you, you replay it, you realize, no, <laughs> it's just uh, just my mind, just my aversive tendency looking for an object. You know that, uh, as one one friend of ours put it, in very kind of. Uh, neat way," he said. "The syntax of aversion requires a direct object. Those of you familiar with English grammar, <laughs> that the syntax of aversion requires a direct object. When your mind is is disposed towards aversion, you know, anything will do. <laughs> You're just looking for a thing to be annoyed about or to complain about, or if it's agreed uh, uh, that uh, your mind will su- find some way of wanting <laughs> what it's hearing, what it's seeing, what it's smelling, what it's tasting. Uh, the 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 syntax of greed also requires a direct object, like "I want that." But it doesn't really—it doesn't really matter what it, what uh, what the object is. And in this way, we realize that that the the mind is kind of shameless. <laughs> Anything will do to be to have an opinion about, to have a a desire for, to have a a complaint about. Anything will do. Yeah, you know, any old rubbish will do. Uh, and so. <clears throat> Uh, to to recognize how that process works and to, to recognize the, the the suffering and the insecurity the the uh, alienation that comes within us when we follow that then when the more we recognize that pain the painfulness of that then the more we're uh, inclined towards letting go of the the source the cause the, the greed hatred and delusion that's the fuel for the whole process so that, uh, that this uh, practice I, I highly recommend. Again, it takes a bit of mindfulness, but it's really worth doing. And it's it's kind of shocking <laughs> how quickly your your well-formed opinions, loves and hates, all fall apart when you when you really sort of bring them centre stage and put the lights on and, and look at them closely. It, they they all seem hollow and, and pointless, and that uh, they they fall apart. But then when they fall apart, and you realise, well, actually, I know I wouldn't really be happy if he did something differently. Yeah, you know, I don't. I, I know I wouldn't really be happy if I got that that thing. Um, it, it's a, it's just like a conjuring trick, and that, and then to recognize that that voice of wisdom in your heart that says, "Yeah, right." <laughs> I'm sure I'd find something else to be upset about. That uh, to listen to that and to be informed by that, and then that ameliorates the habit of following that that compulsion, that opinion, and that uh, uh, that attachment. So then uh, this is a lot to do with learning how to listen to the mind. So learning to to listen uh, to our thoughts. And in this respect, when we're trying to deal with the the story-making factory and uh, learning to to relate to our our thoughts and uh, our opinions, one of the biggest obstacles is that we have this weird belief that because we think something, we assume it to be true. This is a theme I, I, I talk about a lot. This is a very weird presumption to make. Just because a thought forms in the mind, we take it to be an accurate representation of reality. This is a very peculiar thing to believe because what we're thinking today might be very different from what we were thinking a year ago. And if we were right then, how can we be right now? Or if we're right now, how how, how could we have been right then? And if... Uh, If our thoughts uh, our opinion uh, now, if we're so sure this is right, then in a year's time when we think something different, yeah, (laughs) what does that say about what we're thinking in the present? Right? I mean, the logic is not very complicated. (laughs) But yet, uh, we still assume, if I think it, it's true. And if other people think differently, they're wrong. Very simple. And uh, they'll either see reason and, and allow themselves to be set straight, and they'll think like me, or they'll just continue to be deluded and think differently. That's how we function, isn't it? It's kind of it's crazy, but that's how we we operate. So, uh, uh, the, one of the first steps in this is to to learn to to not believe your thoughts. Or as uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedha once famously said, right here in this salo, and during a winter retreat one year, he said. He was giving a Dhamma talk and uh, talking about the nature of thought and he paused for a moment and said, all your thoughts are garbage. <laughs> all your thoughts are garbage. And uh, you could feel a few people say, well, hang on a minute. Some of my thoughts are very intelligent. You know, maybe all your thoughts are garbage. But, uh... but it, was a, it was a very insightful and helpful comment because when you, you say, okay, well, they all go in the <laughs> in the rubbish in the rubbish pile, then it gives you a, a, um, uh, a different way of holding them. It gives you a different context that they are. If you more look at your thoughts as just sort of something that has, you know, a vague relationship to reality, but it's nothing that, that's fixed or absolute or permanent. That it's a sort of a working hypothesis or, or a, a, a convenient fiction, um, then it's a, it can be useful. But when we take all our thoughts to be absolutely true then um, this is one of the reasons why we end up being in conflict with others. Because if I'm, if I'm always right, I'm not going to meet with everybody. who uh, and not, It's not going to be the case that everybody that I meet is going to think in the same way. Therefore, if I'm always right, then I'm going to keep meeting with people who are wrong. And then the more I hold on to my rightness, then the more I'm in a state of conflict and separation from others. So the more that uh, we can recognize, well, my my, my thoughts are all garbage, (laughs) and that uh, they are just um, convenient fictions that are are useful for certain purposes and they can have a certain value, but uh, they're nothing absolute or reliable or permanent. Uh, They're just a kind of thumbnail sketch of, uh, uh, of reality rather than an absolute reliable representation then when somebody thinks differently then you think oh that's different that's another way of looking at it <laughs> that's interesting i never thought of it that way rather than you you're wrong <laughs> or like idiot you know. <laughs> you know, just because they they express something differently and so that capacity to um uh, say to listen to your thoughts and to to listen to the mind and not to believe in it is is very very helpful to just listen to your thoughts as if you are listening to the neighbor's radio. I often use this as an example. So you didn't even choose the radio station. Again, I know talking about radios makes me dated as well, but <laughs> they are they're still around. But the, the uh, listening to something that's, the, uh, there's some, some uh, news report or some advertisement or some documentary or some some story going on. You didn't even choose the station. You didn't, even, uh, you, you, didn't, you didn't create the story. It's just this verbiage running through the airwaves. You can hear it. You understand the words. It's not particularly interesting. It's not even particularly relevant, just like the, the, the tunes and stories that, that play in the mind. And so then you don't need it to switch off. because You don't need it to go away because you don't have to give it much credibility. You don't have to imbue it with, with meaning and value so that in terms of of listening to the the uh, the creations of the story making factory you don't even have to to make it stop you can just stop your interest in it you can stop your investment uh, in that and uh, and let it go so um, that uh, brings me to the the in a way probably the final theme to reflect on is that uh, you know we can we can be so stressed and oppressed by our thinking habits <coughs> that we believe that we would really be happy if we could just switch the whole thing off and just never think again ever had that that thought oh, please just shut up, <laughs> just shut up and uh, and uh, and so we we can look upon thinking as a kind of brain disease you know it's sort of yeah, uh, unstoppable noise going on between our ears, and that if it would just be quiet, then we'd be happy. But uh, as uh, lumpu would would say that uh, you know, if if that if it was uh, an absence of thought that made us enlightened, so then then you know the this table would be would be an arrow hunt. Yeah, you know, these this this you know the the bricks of this wall would be enlightened because they don't think. <laughs> There's not a thought going through the through that brick or this this table. It's not. Uh, but it's not uh, it's not enlightened so we shouldn't think of the absence of thought as being an enlightened state it just means you're not thinking <laughs> this means that there's there's quietness but that that quietness is not intrinsically liberated uh, it's not a, 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 a an awakened or liberated state and that uh, thought once the mind has learned to concentrate and then to, to be uh, able to focus on the present and learn to not believe in the creations uh, and stories that the mind tells, then you can actually use thought. You can use words to uh, to help uh, the mind to understand things in a better way. We can we can learn how to think clearly. So this uh, is um, an area of that uh, is maybe not given so much, um, say, uh, uh, coverage. Not talked about so much in in uh, me- uh, the Buddhist meditation circles. Um, but it's, if you read the, the teachings, the sutras, that the Buddha makes a lot of what's called wise reflection, yoni so manasikara, and that there's uh, 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 these kind of phrases repeated over and over again, wisely reflecting. You know, a person will consider that you know that that which is born is going to die, or that they will consider, you know, if my mind dwells upon. Uh, uh, thoughts of aversion, then that's the direction it will it will uh, it will be uh, inclined to go in. If the wisely reflecting you consider, if the mind is uh, dwells upon thoughts of loving kindness, then that will be the uh, inclination that, it, that it, it has. So, wisely reflecting um, is a, uh, a very common phrase, and that's not an accident. Uh, so, the the capacity to reflect, to use conceptual thought to explore. What the uh, the nature of an experience is to in a way map the territory uh, of our experience our perceptions our thoughts our memories our ideas there there's a, an ability that we have um, to to say recognize patterns how things work and reflective thought can be extraordinarily helpful in, uh, in uh, say developing that so uh, a few well-placed thoughts can save you weeks if not years of grief and suffering. <laughs> that, uh, it, it's really um, uh, quite remarkable how when we pick up a, a, a situation or a pattern of experience and, and consider it and use that the, the ability to investigate. Uh, so Yoni Manasikara is one phrase you have in Pali. Tamavijaya is another almost identical phrase. Uh, uh, um, this way of investigating the reality, the, the patterns of, of an experience that is a, um, a very powerful tool. In fact, Dhamma Vijaya is one of the factors of enlightenment. So the the enlightened mind uh, naturally employs this capacity to uh, to recognize patterns, to understand, to see how things fit together, and how one thing leads to another, and how things interrelate with each other. And so that that's a very useful faculty that we have. It's an important capacity that we can draw upon, and using conceptual thought to um, to say. Uh, Guide that, and to help formulate that is is uh, is very very helpful. So that just to be able to reflect, well, why uh, why am I so upset? You know, uh, I see somebody um, carrying out an action that they are. <coughs> I see somebody um, uh, parking the parking their car in a certain spot, and my mind says. Yeah, yeah. and my 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 mind's got upset about it yeah, look at that i mean why is my mind upset well because my my mind has the perception that uh, that's my lawn and then from that that perception they shouldn't park on my lawn how dare they don't they know i'm the abbot of this monastery they shouldn't be parking there yeah well, that's why my my mind is upset because I call that my lawn. If that wasn't my lawn, <laughs> then I wouldn't get upset. Aha. Uh-huh. So there's a reflection. You're using conceptual thought to to look at. Say, oh, look at that! You know, if I was if I was a visitor to this monastery and I saw somebody's parked their car, you know, on the grass in front of my kuti, then uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't get upset. If it, if I was just a visitor, I would just say, oh, someone's parked their car on the grass. Okay. So you know, people do that. So so what? Then because it's my my grass, then there's a reaction. So that uh, to to use a few well placed thoughts, then you can you can save yourself a, a lot of grief. And uh, using the, the the Buddha's teachings, um, taking uh, uh, you know elements of the teaching, and just having those uh, well learned and and well. Well, uh, say well remembered, then you can apply those and and uh, and just uh, say bring those into consciousness and say times like that. Well, look, if I call that mine, it's a problem. If I, if I don't see it as mine, it's not a problem. <laughs> look at that. So, that using the, the the Buddha's instruction about you know any kind of attachment to I and me and mine, I think it was the uh, um uh, I think last week's talk if I remember about and um, oh no, that was doubt. It was the first week's talk. Um, about uh, about I and me and mine. And uh, well, look at that. As soon as there's I and me and mine, there's suffering. With no I and me and mine, there's no suffering. Look at that. <laughs> so then that is the application of thought and uh, the capacity to to uh, to describe things. And it's also, uh, speaking of stories, why some stories have lasted hundreds or thousands of years, why we keep telling the same stories or why stories... Carry a certain power like the the uh, the ancient myths uh, or the stories of the Buddha's life that we, we tell or the, the ancient tales of uh, the um, the Hindu scriptures or the Bible or the the fairy tales uh, of uh, of Europe and around the world uh, the stories of um, Shakespeare's plays and uh, so on you know, we keep telling these stories because they give us a, a helpful map that uh, to our own experience and so that's why you know fairy stories or myths or these ancient tales that we keep telling the same stories we're using the stories to actually characterize what's going on inside us they help us to make sense of, of what we're experiencing and so that when a a, a child dies and uh, the um, the the grief of the of the mother the, the death of a child then we, we can, uh, we can empathize with that. We, we have a story to tell. It's like when the, the Buddha gave the advice to, to Gotami, telling, uh, Kisa Gotami who brought her dead child to the Buddha, saying, hey, please, can you, can you heal my sick child? You know, my, he, he seems to have died, but I'm sure you can bring him back to life. And the Buddha says, well, if you, uh, if you can get me, oh, yeah, very easy. All you have to do is get me a mustard seed. It's one mustard seed. That's all. But uh, if you can get it from a house where uh, nobody has died, uh, that's, the, that's the important thing. But uh, just a mustard seed will do, but uh, it has to come from somewhere, where, from a house where no one has ever died. And so Kisa go to me. she goes racing off to try and get the mustard seed. Oh, this is going to be so easy. Not, it's not difficult at all. Mustard seed is everywhere. Every house has this. And she goes to one house after another and and says, you know, can I have some mustard seed? And they say, oh yes, sure. She explains why and then she said, oh, by the way, has anyone ever died in this house? And they go, oh, well, of course, yeah. You just, uh, you know, last week, my uncle died. Or you know, Oh, yes, a month ago, my grandmother died. And then house after house after house, she goes, and uh, uh, after some time, she realizes there is no house in the whole city of Sarvati that has not had somebody die in it. You know, death is everywhere. And so that she's able to, to acknowledge and receive the fact that her son has died and he's not coming back. So this is a story. Uh, It's a story, but it's a really useful story, because everyone who's had a a child or a loved one who's died, or some grief in our life, something that's lost, something that is broken that can't be repaired, then uh, we we have a story like that, and it's a useful story. So uh, uh, by telling that story and reflecting on that, we can say uh, draw upon that in us which says, "Oh yeah, that's right." I, I do feel a grief that this thing that was precious to me uh, has 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 died. It's this is this this um, loved one or this um, uh, this cherished possession or this faculty that I had. I used to be able to hear clearly, and now I sit here for the whole Dhamma talk, and I'm just, even with the good Amravati sound system, it's just mumbles. You know, I used to be able to hear, and I now get ten percent. Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind. But, uh, Sometimes it's like that. It's, it, you, you know, the sense of grief and loss—it's broken. My hearing is gone, or my vision is gone, or my thinking faculties have gone. And it's not going to come back. There's a grief there, but then the story of Kisa Gotami is like that. That story helps us to recognize: yeah, that's how it is. That's the—that's always been the way the world is, and it's never been different. And the fact that I—I assume that somehow I could go through life and never have. Uh, the experience of loss, nothing that I love to be broken or, or separated from me. I was foolish. I was, I was uh, in a deluded state to think that, that it could be that way. Ah. So the story helps us to let go. So um, I would, uh, even though the title of the, 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 uh, the talk today implies that if we could just stop the st- you know, all stories <laughs> altogether, I would suggest that you know, stories can be useful. But it's only when they won't shut up. (laughs) when you can't switch them off. And also when you you only get like the first 5% and then it goes off with another story and then another and then another and then another. You never actually get to hear the whole story. Uh, But uh, when uh, uh, stories, when when, uh, thoughts are um, used in context and they're they're applied with with mindfulness and wisdom, then they can be something that uh, uh, are as much of a blessing as uh, ending the, uh, the the flood of conceptual proliferation so I'll leave those thoughts with you for today.